We read God's word this evening in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin." Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God." Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid." Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members 
servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far we read God's holy word. Our text is Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Beloved, the chapter begins with an inference with the word then. What shall we say then? An inference is a conclusion. If what is taught in the context is true, what shall our conclusion be? What shall we say then? And that teaching then goes back to the previous chapter, the end of chapter 5, when sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then the inference is, or the suggested conclusion is, if grace abounds where sin abounded, shall we continue in sin? I might call that inference, I might call that conclusion, the devil's logic. If the more we sin, the more God's grace abounds in forgiving our sin, then we should keep sinning. We should increase and multiply our sin. I say that is the devil's logic. The devil loves such so-called logic because the devil wants to convince us to sin freely, to sin grossly, to sin presumptuously. And the answer to the devil's logic or the answer to the logic of hell is found in Romans 5.21, the end of the previous chapter, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Where grace abounds, it also 
reigns. That's the key. Where grace abounds, it also reigns. Think, therefore, of grace as a king. And that king, he sets up his throne in our lives. He rules in our hearts. He rules in our minds. He rules in our souls. He rules in our wills. And when he does so, he dethrones another king, a king who used to rule. And that king is sin. Sin used to reign, or sin used to rule, and now a different king reigns or rules grace. And where grace reigns, the apostle also tells us, grace reigns through righteousness. Where grace is a king, it brings the life and the heart, and the mind, and the soul, and the will of that person into conformity with God's standard, which is righteousness. And then Romans 6 really is an extended commentary on that truth, this idea, this concept of grace reigning through righteousness. And where grace reigns through righteousness, beloved, we cannot continue in sin. Notice then, our continuing in sin, impossible. Our continuing in sin, impossible. Notice first, a foolish argument rejected, and then a compelling reason rejected given. The apostle at the beginning of the chapter anticipates an argument, and like a good teacher then, he answers that argument. The argument is foolish, but it appears reasonable. It appears reasonable because it begins with a true premise. And the true premise is this. We are saved by the grace of God without our works. The true premise is this. God's goal in our salvation is the praise of the glory of His grace. The true premise is this. God wills that in our salvation His grace abound or be magnified or increase or multiply. And the arguer understands that, or at least he seems to understand that, and so he frames his argument in a certain way. He says, let us continue in sin. And here's the purpose, he says, for our continuing in sin. Let us continue in sin that so that grace may abound. And so this arguer seems to be very concerned about God's grace. An argument based upon a true premise, a foolish 
devilish argument based upon a true premise is very dangerous. Let's analyze this argument more closely. If we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, without our works, shall we continue in sin? We are indeed saved by grace alone, by faith alone, without our works. The premise is true. Is then the conclusion or the deduction also true that we should continue in sin? If our good works contribute nothing to our salvation, shall we then continue in sin? Again, the premise is true. Our good works do indeed contribute nothing to our salvation. The premise is true. Is then the conclusion not also true that we should continue in sin? Apply that to your own lives. Try to understand the force of the argument. Young people, You go, or most of you go, I believe, to Covenant Christian High School. And you know, of course, that the covenant is a relationship of friendship and fellowship with God in Jesus Christ. And you know, of course, that that covenant is unconditional, which means your relationship with God does not depend on what you do. How then shall you respond to such teaching? Do you say to yourself, that means it does not matter how I live in the world? That means I can be like the young people in the world around me who get drunk and do drugs and are sexually promiscuous, I can live that way too? Does that mean I can live an ungodly life because it doesn't really matter how I live anyway? Does that mean I can bully my classmates at school? I can be disrespectful to my teachers. I can dishonor my parents at home and still be a child of God, enjoying God's salvation. Shall we continue in sin? Asked the arguer. How do you respond to that? Or the rest of us, members of the Protestant Reformed churches, confessing members of true churches of Christ Jesus, raised in the church, baptized, catechized, regular attenders of public worship, active members in a denomination where the hallmark is salvation by grace alone. The hallmark is the unconditional covenant of grace. How then do we respond to such teaching? Does that mean I can live like the world and still go to heaven 
Does that mean it does not matter one way or the other how I treat my spouse at home or how I treat my children? That I can neglect prayer and the reading of God's Word and public worship? I can multiply sins in my life. I can live in malice and envy. I can hate God and my neighbor. It doesn't really matter. Shall we, asks the apostle, echoing this arguer, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What is your answer to that? Look at the words more carefully. What does it mean to continue in sin? It means more than simply to sin or to commit sin. It means more than simply to be sinful, because all of us are sinful, all of us commit sin, all of us sin. But that word continue is significant. It means to stay for a considerable period of time in a certain place, or to continue doing something for a period of time. Shall we continue in sin, then, means this. Shall we persist in sin? Shall we persevere in sinning? Shall we continue to make sin our practice? Shall we walk in sin? And then the word in, well, that describes where this continuing occurs. Shall we continue in sin? Shall sin be the environment where we live? Shall sin be where we belong? Shall sin be where we make our abode? Shall sin be where we feel at home? Shall we continue to commit sin as our constant, persistent practice? Shall sin be to us as water is to a fish, our natural environment? Shall sin be where we delight to dwell, delight to live, because we enjoy it? because we desire it, because we want to continue in it. Shall we continue in sin? And I say that this seems to be a reasonable argument because it begins with God's grace, but here is where a seemingly reasonable, seemingly logical argument becomes devilish. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The arguer, as the apostle presents it here, 
the arguer seems to have a high view of God's grace. If you ask this individual, he would tell you, I love God's grace. He might even be a preacher. He preaches God's grace. He teaches God's grace. And he tells us, I want God's grace to abound. I want God's grace to increase, to multiply, and to be magnified. God's grace is, first of all, the beauty of God's perfect character. We worship Him in the beauty of holiness— And our desire as believers in Christ Jesus is that His grace should abound. God's grace is second, His beautiful attitude of favor toward us who are unworthy sinners. In His grace, He wills to bless us. And that grace comes to us from the fountain of unconditional election, that grace is displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ, where Christ died for our sins, that grace is given to us by the Holy Spirit, and so we love to hear about God's grace. That's the focus of the preaching in this church, God's grace. We love to see God's grace displayed in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love to see that grace displayed in our own lives and in others. We desire that God's grace should abound. And God's grace is third, His power to deliver us from the shameful vileness of our sins and to make us spiritually beautiful with the beauty of Christ Jesus, who is the image of God. And we love to see the power of God's grace in our lives and the lives of others. We love to see how God's grace makes us holy and upholds us in our trials. And we say, yes, yes, may God's grace abound. Here comes the arguer with his devilish logic and says to us, if God's grace is magnified in the forgiveness of sins, let us continue in sin. And if God's grace is displayed in the justifying of sinners, let us continue in sin. And in this way, says the arguer, you have this bonus. If we continue to sin, God's grace shall abound. You want God's grace to abound, do you not? And therefore, what you must do is sin freely and grossly and presumptuously and persistently. If you sin more, God will forgive you more. Because after all, 
Forgiveness is by the grace of God. The more God forgives you, the more God's grace abounds. And so, sin as much as you can. And if you live in ungodliness, well, don't you know that God justifies the ungodly? So, the more ungodly you are, the more God justifies you by His grace. And so, be as ungodly as you can. And if you don't, if you don't sin much, then God's grace, says the arguer, will have hardly anything to do in your life. And then, by not sinning much, you're really causing God's grace to be dishonored, because God's grace will then shrink and decrease rather than abound and multiply and increase. And so, the only conclusion is sin freely and grossly and presumptuously, and then God will be extra gracious to you, and God will be glorified in your sinning. What is your response to that? Perhaps you can't think this evening of a sophisticated theological argument in response to that. Perhaps you think to yourself, well, that sounds very logical. I can't think of a way to contradict that. But here is, I trust, the response of your heart the response of your soul. God forbid. That's the apostle's response. Before he answers it, he says, God forbid. May it never be. That's the meaning of God forbid. Those words, God forbid, then, are the apostles' immediate response to this idea. And those words mean, may it not be, and they always express a strong desire that something not be true or that something not happen. They always express a strong rejection of something and abhorrence of something. It's not a theological argument or an exegetical argument or a logical argument, first of all. It is the spontaneous response of the heart of the child of God when he hears such a thing. He says in his heart, God forbid, may it never be. The fact is, If such salvation were possible, as I have just described it, if such salvation were possible, we would not want it. Imagine God comes to us and says to us, I will forgive your sins 
You will be justified. You will be delivered from the guilt of your sin, but you will continue to live in sin under sin's power, under sin's bondage. You would say, God forbid. Not that. Or God comes to us and says, I will justify you, but I will not sanctify you, and so you will remain in the filth and pollution and vileness and shame of your sins forever. Our answer would be, God forbid. May it not be. The child of God who knows what the grace of God is says to that, God forbid, because he understands what salvation is and must be, he says to himself, if I am saved, I must be saved from all aspects of sin. From the guilt of sin, from the power and bondage and pollution and defilement and shame of sin. If I am to be saved, I must be saved in such a way that I do not continue in that sin which I detest. I must be delivered so that I am able from the heart to serve the God whom I love. Anything less is not really salvation. Anything less is not the abounding of the grace of God in Jesus Christ at all. Anything less is the ugly tyrant sin masquerading himself as the grace of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. May it never be. And having set forth his immediate, you might say, emotional response to this idea, the apostle then gives a compelling theological reason for his God forbid, and that theological argument is this, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And the point the apostle makes here is really very simple. Our relationship to sin has changed. Our relationship to sin has changed. There was a time in the past for the child of God when he lived in sin. He lived in sin. And now, by God's grace, he is dead to sin. And that's a fundamental transformation, a completely different relationship to sin. The Bible speaks of being dead in sin. 
Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked. Unbelievers are still dead in sin. Believers in the past were dead in sin, but now they are very much alive. And so in the past, sin was where we lived. Sin was our environment. Sin was our natural habitat. Sin was to us in the past as water is to a fish, where we lived, where we felt comfortable, where we delighted to be. That was the experience of the Romans. They used to be slaves to sin. They lived in sin. They were dead in their trespasses and sin. And now the apostle says that has changed. And that changed because, literally, we have died to sin. We have died to sin. And death, as you know, brings about the end of a relationship. The end of a relationship. There was a relationship between us and sin. Sin ruled over us. Sin was our Lord. Sin was our master. Sin was our king. As the previous chapter ended, sin hath reigned, or sin hath ruled. Sin then held sway in our lives. Sin sat on the throne of our hearts. Sin filled our minds with perverse things. Sin directed our wills. Sin employed the members of our bodies in the service of evil. We were the willing servants of sin. You ought not think that sinners, unbelieving, unregenerate sinners, are unwilling servants of sin, as if sinners are forced against their will to commit sin. It's not some kind of external compulsion that comes upon them, forcing them against their will to commit sin. If that were the case you might have the possibility of finding someone who is willing to rebel against the power of sin. But the bondage to sin is an internal thing from which no sinner ever attempts to escape. Sin holds the sinner fast so that the sinner gladly, even greedily, serves sin. Think of the sinner's heart as being chained with fetters of its own lusts and desires. That's why sin is inescapable. 
No sinner ever desires to be set free. If you ask the sinner, would you want to be set free from the power of sin which controls your life? He would say, no, because I believe myself to be free. He's blind to the fact that he's a slave to sin. He is enthralled by sin and delights in sin and is deceived by sin and will perish in his sin. Except that God, by his grace, deliver him from that sin. And our relationship then to sin has changed. And that happens, says the apostle, when we died. How shall we that are dead to sin or who died to sin live any longer therein? You understand that death is the end of a relationship, both in terms of its legal obligations and its enjoyment. A woman is married to her husband. And that relationship ends when she dies. If the marriage was a happy one, then the sweet communion of marriage ends at death. If the marriage was a miserable one, then the misery of that relationship also ends at death. Death brings an end to the relationship. And that's true also of our relationship to sin. Sin had, in the past, the right to rule over us until we died. And now we are dead to sin. Sin no longer has the right to demand our service, to control our heart, our soul, our mind, our will to employ the members of our body to fulfill its desires and lusts. It did that until we died. And now we are dead to sin. Sin no longer rules over us. And so sin comes to us and says to us, Serve me. Serve me. Get drunk, do drugs, watch pornography, dishonor your parents, worship idols, live in malice, envy, and hatred. Serve me, sin says. Our response must be, sin used to be my king, but I have died. I am dead to sin. We say to sin, our relationship is over. I will not live any longer in you. I will not live any longer onto you. I will no longer serve you because 
a new king rules in me, and that new king is Jesus Christ, and he rules in me by the power of his grace, and he rules in me through righteousness, and so you have sin, no more power over me. That happened in Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross, two very important things occurred. The first is very well known to us. He paid the penalty for all of our sins. He obtained the pardon of our sins. That's the first thing. You might say the main thing. And the second thing is this. Jesus, by his death on the cross, severed or broke the relationship that existed between sin and us. And the apostle goes on to explain that in this chapter. When Jesus died for us, we died in him, we died with him, and the result is we died to sin. And then that is applied to us in this life. The Holy Spirit takes the benefit of Christ's cross, applies it to our life at the point of regeneration, and at that point, he breaks the power of sin over us so that we are no longer under the bondage of sin. Sin no longer rules. Grace rules instead. Christ rules instead. But notice too, sin did not die. It does not say in the text, how shall we, to whom sin has died, live any longer therein? But it says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We died. Sin did not die. If sin had died, and sin did not die, if sin had died, then sin would no longer have any power at all. Sin would be completely gone. Then sin would not have any power to tempt us or to harass us or to annoy us or to attract us. And we all know that sin still has that power. And we all know how alluring sin is to us because we have the sinful flesh. But sin, for all of its power, does not have the power to rule us. And therefore, if we permit sin in our life, if we deliberately walk in sinful ways, we suffer the consequences of our foolishness. And God will, through painful chastisement, bring us to repentance, to the realization that, yes, indeed, sin 
ought not to rule in my life, and I was allowing sin for a time to rule in my life, and I was committing treason against my rightful King, Jesus Christ. And God, in his mercy, brings us to repentance. And that, then, is the conclusion. We might fall into sin, but we cannot continue in sin. We might be tempted to sin and even succumb to temptations at times, but we cannot continue in sin. We can never be happy in our sin because sin is no longer our natural environment. It ought to be and is strange to us. And so God's grace does not abound when we continue in sin. God forbid that we should think that. God forbid that we should live that way. God's grace abounds when God forgives our sins and when God delivers us from the power and bondage of sin so that we no longer live in that sin. And that's because we died to the power of sin. And when we died to sin, we were released from the tyranny and misery of that old master who rules over sinners. And we were brought under the gracious rule of Jesus Christ so that we are by that grace free free to serve not ourselves, but free to serve Jesus Christ, who reigns in us by his grace through righteousness. Amen. Our Father in heaven, what a rich salvation thou hast given to us. Not only hast thou forgiven all of our sins, but also thou hast delivered us from the power of sin, so that we by thy grace can live a new and holy life of obedience to thee in thanksgiving for thy great salvation of us. Grant, O Father, that we might not live in sin. We might resist the lures and allurements of sin. We might live rather under the power of thy grace, as thou dost reign through us in righteousness. For Christ's sake, amen.